begin with questions um, from yesterday. Uh, questions. Uh, can you tell me um, your story about decision not to be monk rather than ordinary man? Um, yes, well, I, I um, <coughs> first evening I did speak about this a um, little bit and um, to recap, well, let me go back a bit and <coughs> tell you that as a as a child, I I suffered from asthma a lot, so I missed a lot of school, <coughs> which in in England for a young boy is not such a bad thing, um, <coughs> and um, I really. Uh, enjoyed being alone off school and used to read a lot and so I <coughs> was probably more thoughtful introspective than most boys of my age um, as I also mentioned I, uh, I I didn't have any sense of connection or faith or confidence in um, teachings of Christianity. They, they didn't make sense to me at all and uh, rejected them from very early age. So in my teens, um, the way into Dhamma, if you like, was really intense interest in life, the world, my mind, um, happiness, suffering, what's a good way to live, what's the best way to live your life, what what kind of goals should you have in life. Because it seemed to me um, everyone was just on a very narrow and limited path. You, know, you do O-level so you can get A-level, you do A-level so you can go to university, you can get a degree, you can get a job, you get a family, you get a house, and so on and so forth. <laughs> to me, you know, I, I there must be something more to life than that. Um, I found that really sort of depressing prospect, just of working and making money and, and just um, living the normal life. So, I wanted to know why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why is there so much violence and cruelty in the world? Does it have to be this way? Um, <clears throat> why are we, why is it that everyone in the world wants to be happy, but there seem to be very few people who have much idea about how to go about it? And looking at people who are supposed to be really smart and um, with degrees and even doctorates, don't find them particularly wise people or very hard to find anybody I, I could see. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to be like them when I get older. So I had so many questions about life and, and the world and so on. 
that I started to read a lot of books of psychology and philosophy and things like this. And my first observation of reading works of Western philosophy uh, was that there was a huge gap between the life of the philosopher and their philosophy. You should read the philosophy, it sounds really cool. You know, they say, oh, that's very profound. And then research their biography and find they're not very nice people at all. And for me, that um, a philosopher should, should be able to express his teachings in his life. If he doesn't, it's just a fake, it's just thinking, it's superficial and um, more or less a waste of time. So uh, eventually I, I came across teachings of the Buddha and I was um, immediately uh, impressed and it seemed to me just obvious and common sense and straightforward and no, although I had quite a developed critical faculty ability to analyze and take things apart. Um, I couldn't find anything to um, criticize or to um, object to in Buddhist teaching. So this was a turning point for me in my life. And um, so after I, I finished my A-levels, then I, I worked in our the building site, in the warehouse, and saved some money. Um, because I'd, I'd had a principle since I was very young, maybe 13, that I wouldn't ever take any money from my parents, uh, be self-sufficient. Um, and so, you know, working a paper round and on a gas station, petrol station, things like that when I was a teenager. And so then I set off for India and um, interested in just general life experience, but also specifically in Buddhism and um, Eastern religion. And after many adventures, um, I returned to England after almost two years, by which time you know, it's clear to me I didn't want to go to university. I didn't see any point in it. Um, all I was really interested was Buddhism. But I didn't quite know how to, um, how to go about living a life in the world um, and devoting myself to Buddhism. And I enrolled in a, on a Buddhist meditation retreat, which was led by an English Vipassana teacher who had been a monk in Thailand for six, seven years. And in his evening talks, he would often refer to his experience as a monk in the forest and caves of Thailand. And that was a you know, revelation. Um, although I'd been all as far as India, I'd never been able to make it to Thailand. And to know it would be possible to live my whole life um, as a monk, it's not just a, you know, going on a course for a few weeks and finding myself back at, um, back at square one, but being able to um, give many years or my whole life to this 
Um, that was just uh, an obvious choice. You know. It wasn't like a big decision. It was just, just obvious. Um, so I, I came out to Thailand. In, well, before that, I, I heard that there were some disciples of Ajahn Chah living in London who were um, looking for a place to build a forest monastery in England. And I went and lived with that community under Ajahn Sumedho for a few months, the, the, the Pansa of um, 1978. And then following that in the um, in November of 1978, and I came to Thailand and went to Ubon and became disciple of Ajahn Chah. So that's um, you know, more or less what led up to becoming a monk. Um, what kind of happiness we found? Have uh, ever been bored? <laughs> um, well, the, um, a monk is, is very restricted. In, in what he can um, tell lay people about his own practice and attainments. But I, w- I would say that um, right from the beginning, there are so many things that um, made me happy, right from you know, you know, just the first year or, or more sort of struggling to adapt into the climate, into the lifestyle and so on. And in the late 70s, early 80s, conditions in Northeast Thailand were very primitive, very difficult physically. And uh, you know, since, uh, while I've been a monk, I, I think I've had every, um, every kind of fever going, you know, malaria and typhus and typhoid and, and um, uh, what's the other one? Rokchinu, um, all kinds of things. But for me, uh, what I loved and, you know, I've loved and still love to this day is, you know, the fact that you can be living in a community of, like, say, 50, maybe 50, 60 young men, you know, like young, young men, a lot of these, uh, the Thai monks are like, uh, farm boys and kind of tough characters, um, and yet to feel completely safe, and that sense of, of um, brotherhood and kindness and and um, and gentleness and manners amongst young men in their twenties and thirties. I, mean, I can't think of any other uh, environment in which you would find anything like that. I mean, the standard of, of conduct. And behavior and um, the, the refinement of it is, is unique. So, just to be living in any kind of community and have that sense of um, safety and being valued and, and respected and, being a, and having people around you that you look up to, and you're looking at people who've been doing this for years and you, and you find them inspiring and you think you'd like to be like them, you know. Um, that's that's just such a wonderful thing as a monk uh, to be able to um, experience, and and then 
the other thing that you're all you all share the same goals you're all practicing for the same thing and there's no nobody's trying to compete against anybody or take advantage of each other and and um and there's not somebody wants this somebody wants that and different values and expectations but all you know all in harmony so there's a harmony of conduct and a harmony of of aspiration or view or understanding of life so even before you get onto all the um the happiness that arises from leading a good life and from keeping precepts and from practicing meditation and more increasingly refined kinds of happiness even the basic level of of living in a uh, virtuous community um is already a wonderful thing the um I think to to you know to give some idea um then observe you know it's very it's very important to observe in your mind the way in which defilements make you unhappy and the way and the uh, when you feel really happy not just sort of um you know excited or stimulated but that real real sense of um inner pure kind of happiness is dependent on the absence of defilement then you can begin to appreciate the kind of happiness that arises in the life of a long-term meditator or a, or a monk or a nun so you will see how constantly your own greed and discontent and jealousy and anger and so on these are the things that prevent you from being happy in life more than anything else um and the only um i think intelligent way to to seek for happiness in life it, it must involve on one level or another taking on these defilements and seeking to overcome them because whatever whatever worldly accomplishments you have if it's not accompanied by balanced by this inner spiritual endeavor it'll always be hollow you know it'll always be it'll you'll always be having the feeling oh i thought it would be more than this you know you look at some uh, kind of standard of living or having some kind of possession or being well known famous even in society all these things and they seem so fantastic and then again and again people who do uh, get these things is this sense i thought it would be more than this you know I, this isn't still quite it you know there's still something missing and and this is the essence of the life of an unenlightened person you know it's that it is still something not quite right there's still something missing and that can only be overcome by as i say by by working to develop um mindfulness wisdom compassion um all these uh, virtues and to and to deal with defilements um <clears throat> next next question uh, what is merit or bun and how can attending a retreat program like this contribute some merit to our loving parents um <clears throat> 
one the um, the classic definition of merit found in the in the scriptures um, is is in Thai, Kriang Chambra Sandan. So it's something which purifies or uplifts um, you. Something which um, we could say increases the quality of your life. So, um, give you an example uh, in the realm of giving. You say so. Giving is merit. You know, merit involved in giving. Why? In what way? Well, the um, attachment to um, material possessions and the worry about them and the um, craving for them and the all the selfishness that comes up um, in our relation to material world is something that, that really makes the mind uh, kind of shallow and narrow um, and immature. So um, training a mind to, to find the joy in giving and sharing um, some part of your wealth and some part of your possession is um, directly opposing that um, uh, selfish, um, stingy um, attitude. So it's, it's undermining it. It's, it's working to just uh, very gently work away um, at those um, negative mental states that arise um, as someone with possessions, uh, in the life of someone with possessions. But when we give, you know, there are different kinds of giving. You know, there's giving with strings attached and giving without strings attached. So if you give something because you want something from them, so you might want some material reward, um, you know, what's in it for me? I'll give you this, but, you know, I'm expecting a favor here or I'm expecting... That's not very meritorious. There's not much bun there. Why? Because you look at your mind, there's not that sense of giving and relinquishing, and, and, but it's a, it's a bargain, it's a business deal. You know, I'm giving you this because I want this. And what you want might be something material, or it might be uh, I'm giving you this so you'll like me, or so you'll respect me, or so you'll know who I am. Um, so whenever you have some um, some thought of gaining something in return, you can notice that the mental state um, is very different from when you just give because you you see someone suffering and you want to help to alleviate that suffering or you see something doing something really good in their life or in society and, and you want to support that. Um, in a traditional case, seeing monks are leading a good life and doing something really worthwhile and useful for society and and you're inspired with the teachings of the Buddha, you want to support them, so you make offering to the monastic order, to the Sangha, or to charities, charitable foundations. Or, and it's that sense of... And, and notice if, if you have no expectation of any kind of recognition at all, 
um, then it is a very special kind of feeling. You know, it's just done completely out of sense of generosity. And look, I've got, you know, I've got enough. You can make really good use of this. Please take it. And that's the um, a sense of we have wealth, we have possessions um, in order to uh, be of benefit and to uh, create happiness. Um, and if sometimes uh, we've got more than we need or we can some that we can share, then we can create um, happiness and, and, and benefits on a wider scale. It's a wonderful thing. So, um, if now we, we were to look back on you know, two occasions in our life where we've given something, one in which we, we gave without any expectation of reward just because we thought it was a really good thing to do and we were inspired to do that. And another occasion where we've given expecting something in return. Now if you look, try and look at the feeling in your, in your mind when you re remember um, that pure giving and that giving with an expectation. And the feeling is, is very different. You know, you, in the sort of business deal kind of giving, you just feel it's nothing. But the moment you recollect some act of true kindness that you performed in the past, even if it's a year or five years ago or ten years ago, you immediately feel good. You immediately feel happy and proud in a good way. And this is how you can see what bun is. You know, there's, um, bun is a source of real happiness um, because once you've performed a good action or a kind action, whenever you remember it afterwards, you always feel good. And it's a kind of a treasure in your heart. When you're, when you're down and when you're depressed and things are going, hard, going, going uh, not going very well, rather than seeking some distraction, some enjoyment, some drug or something, you're bringing to mind the good things that you've done in your life just immediately uh, raises your uh, raises your, your, your sense of self-respect uh, and, and happiness. So any, any um, action of body, speech and mind um, which reduces the amount of greed, hatred and delusion in the mind, something which comes from wisdom, compassion, kindness, um, that, that is merit. And um, you know, there is a lot. Of, there are a lot of um, uh, wrong, mistaken teachings about merit out there these days. And one to be particularly um, wary of is this idea of merit can be measured. You know that um, you give uh, money if you give um, a thousand baht, you get more merit than if you give a hundred baht. Or if you give ten thousand, you get more than a thousand, and and that the more money you give, the more merit you get. Um, that's a very childish and um, uh, uh, non-Buddhist um, idea of of what merit should be, um, or what merit is rather. Because merit is coming from the purity of heart and that sense of renunciation kindness, the wish to help and to support and to um, 
do something good, and the wisdom in choosing that which is offered, and also the, um, the, the also dependent on on those who receive the offering. Because if you make uh, offerings to someone who uses them in an unskillful, improper way, then um, then that's not a very good outcome either. Um, I, I forgot just now, as I didn't finish answering the previous question, do I get bored? Actually, I very, I, yes, I can't, real struggle to remember ever being, being bored. Um, I, I, I tell you if I, I get bored is if, if I'm in a, um, or something like boredom, if I'm in a, uh, in a city or something and someone plays music, I find music really boring. Um, but I find silence very, <laughs> very pleasurable. I don't know how people can sit and listen to music for more than five minutes at a time. Do <clears throat> Uh, I mean, what is boredom? I mean, boredom, you look at boredom. How, what conditions boredom? Now, when boredom is if you're really attached to excitement. The more you like to be excited, the more boredom you're going to have in your life. Because uh, boredom means this isn't exciting enough. It should be more exciting. So the more that you look for happiness and excitement, you know, the, mo- the moment the intensity of excitement just reduces a little bit, then you're going to feel you know, bored. You know, it's just, and, and this is the, one of the um, faults or the problems about sensual pleasures, or, you know, things you can see and hear and touch and smell, is it, it suffers from the law of diminishing returns, which means, um, let's say in a case, let's say, for instance, a pill, you take a pill and then you get a certain kind of high from a pill. Um, but after a while, um, one pill's not enough anymore. And you have to increase to two. And two's not enough. And to get the same pleasure as you got from one, not to get twice the pleasure. Um, and you have to get more input to get the same result. Um, and this is the true in, 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 any kind of sensual pleasure, and in, in realms of sex and violence and all these things, there's this same kind of law there that you, like the, in, in movies and so you know, the amount of gore and bloodshed and incredible kind of um, spattering of blood everywhere, and has to, you know, has to be more and more and more and more, so, you know, otherwise you just feel, you know, it's boring, seen all this before, you know, this is, they've been doing this for years. So, th- so there's this natural tendency in art, even modern art and everything, to be more outrageous and more it just be so that something is different from something you've seen before. And the fact that it can it can excite you it is a sign of quality. You know, it's sort of uh, something which really makes you stop. Wow, you've never seen that before. You know, that's considered to be sort of um, like a really good thing. So it's it's a it's a cycle. You know, the excitement and boredom cycle. And they're not two completely different things. They're, they're, they're one and the same thing. They're two faces of the same thing. Um, okay. How can attending a retreat program like this contribute some merit to our loving parents? Well, um, first of all, 
Uh, I'm speaking as someone you know, growing up in England. You know, I know, and even the concept of bun kun in in uh, English culture is it's not there. I mean, you know, there's families where everyone loves each other and and um, uh, and children appreciate what their parents do for them, of course. But it's a term as a as a kind of a an underlying uh, foundation of the culture. It's not there, and um, the number of people that I knew, you know, or I know in, in England who you know, only see their parents like just at Christmas, or like once a year, or absolute minimum, you know, how how little can I see my uh, my mother and father without being criticised, you know, or, or basically to keep things okay. Um, very very common in the West, and the amount of um, aversion to parents and the amount of blaming of parents. Um, it's, uh, it's a really um, un- unfortunate, unpleasant thing in, in Western society, I find. So I, you know, was really uh, in going to India and being far away from my family and meditating that I began to appreciate all the things that I'd received from my my father and mother. For instance, I um, now, of course, as a monk, you know, so many rules I have to keep, and and even before that, um, I found traveling alone, where there's no structure at all, where I could do anything. Nobody knew who I was. You know, I could get up any time, go to sleep any time, eat anything I wanted, do anything I wanted within reason. Um, where I had to create my own structures, um, I found I was quite I was quite self-disciplined. You know, I could create boundaries for myself and standards for myself. Or I, um, like I, I had limited funds, so I, um, I determined that. While I was in India, I only I only use one dollar a day. I live in. I had to cover everything: travel, um, accommodation, food, everything. So, even though a dollar these uh, those days is, of course, uh, you know, whatever buying power, much more than a dollar these days, it was still really very, um, very little money. And sometimes I just go without eating something, or I'd just sleep rough. Um, Rather than um, go over my 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 limit, and I found I could do things like that. And it was when I was meditating that I realized just my my capacity to do something like that was very much um, thanks to my father. And it was something that when I was a teenager, I used to just find so frustrating. And so, you know, my father was like, "No is no." You know, and he and he said, "What? Look!" And you get all these kind of reasons and hit porn, and he said, "No." And you could, you know, you could shout, or you could be cunning, and you could, you know, <laughs> whatever kind of strategy, you know, no was no. And and whereas I hated that when I was a teenager, as soon as I left home and I had to look after myself, I thought, "Wow, that's one of the." Best things that I, you know, I can see in myself: ability to say no is no. And I thought, where does that come? It comes from my dad, you know. Um, and so, 
in uh, meditation. So you, you're coming in, you're looking at yourself in a lot more kind of objective way at your strong points and your weak points and and things that yeah. And you say, yeah, actually, that that comes from my mum. That comes from my dad. And and so I think that that kind of increased awareness of you know, all that we have received from our parents comes when you're willing just to spend some time with yourself in a meditation retreat where you're not just hooked into all the social media and all the things you've got to do and places you have to be and so on. And you can just stop and, and just be with yourself for a little bit. And there's a lot of things that are just below the surface that just, just come up. And you think, yeah, I never really thought about that before. I never really appreciated that before. So uh, also the you know, the practice of Dhamma and uh, say the making making of merit, you know, is the learning ways to reduce the amount of defilements in your mind and to increase the amount of wholesome dhammas in your mind. So basically, you're becoming you know a better um, better person uh, through um, through tr- through meditation. Um, and that's, you know, going to have a very positive effect, I would hope, on your family life and, and your relations with your, your parents. Um, so, you know, they would, they would certainly appreciate um, that. And then, you know, we have these um, uh, practices and ceremonies of sharing of merit. And of course, there are these philosophical questions or how to what extent can you actually give merit or share merit and so on but I, I think it's just uh, apart from anything else just a beautiful um, way of using your mind whenever you do something you get some kind of wholesome positive happiness you think of sharing the benefits of that with others particularly those who are your uh, your loved ones your benefactors and so on Okay, I'm going to pass on from that one. Um, I can't, can't control you. Just one second. Could you please explain why it is it important for us to try to achieve stream entry in this lifetime? Is it hard to achieve for lay people? Okay, well, stream entry, uh, for those of you not familiar with this term, is a, a technical term. It's the English translation of um, we call sotapatipon, gampanlopinpatsodaban. So the the Buddha um, explained um, enlightenment as of being four. There are four levels. So there's stream entry, um, and then there's what we call a, a once returner or a sakitagami and a non-returner, anagami, and then the highest level is arahant. In fact, it's not that you, it's like a, a step ladder that you go one, two, three, four, somebody might go just jump up to the fourth level or go 
to the third and then the fourth. So it doesn't mean you go one, one by one necessarily. But the first level um, is very interesting um, for a number of reasons. This level we call stream entry or, or the stream entry um, is the first level of enlightenment and it is the key moment um, because in, in a whole, whole of our history in, in samsara, all these many births, because um, someone who realizes this level um, can no longer be reborn in a lower realm. This is a kind of law of nature. So someone who's reached this level, never again will I ever have to be born in a hell realm or as a Brit or a bee or an animal or any... Um, there's only two possibilities, like as a human or as a Dewa. And not only that, but that the uh, realization of Nibbana, like full Arahantship, um, is inevitable in not more than seven lives. So you've, you've put a, um, a time limit on your wandering over all these millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of lives. Now, although the, the higher levels, the Anagami and, and uh, Arahan, um, it's very, very difficult um, as a lay Buddhist to realize that. I mean, all these levels are difficult. But since the Buddhist time, there have been uh, lay men, uh, lay women, people leading ordinary family lives, keeping five precepts, working in the world, who have realized stream entry. And this is why uh, many teachers, including myself, say, if you're looking for a, like an ultimate spiritual goal as a layperson, um, as a Buddhist layperson, then stream entry is a very good um, goal to aspire to because it's something that uh, has been proved to be um, practical, realizable as a layperson. It's not something that you have to become a monk or a nun before you can aspire to or expect or hope to, to realize. The, the uh, realization of, of stream entry uh, is dependent on the abandonment or letting go of certain key defilements. And the most important, the most important of which is um, the, the view, the, um, the attitude of the body and the mind as being self or belonging to self. And that, that view cannot be overturned or destroyed through samadhi, only through wisdom or vipassana. Um, which sees the uh, impermanence, the ultimate unsatisfactoriness or tukha and the anatta of the, all aspects of the body and mind. And now, simultaneously with the letting go of that view through vipassana, then one also loses any doubt in the Buddhist teaching because you verified it now through your own experience. 
and thirdly, um, like attachment, all kinds of techniques and practices and views falls away. So th- this is the um, <coughs> realization of stream entry. I have uh, uh, this question is in Thai. Mae du luk baap rup um yeah i mean i mean it depends on the you know definition of uh, of do as well doesn't it you know what the um if you recall in my explanation of kamma that the key uh, the crucial factor is intention so you can say if um if the mother's intention is good, um, then it would not be a bad kamma, because the bad kamma has to have an unwholesome intention behind it. But that, you know, whether or not um, something is bab is only one consideration, you know, because um, when mother, father, or anyone is trying to um, teach someone or trying to change someone's behavior, then we need wisdom. Um, so sometimes, in some particular cases, speaking a little bit strong, strongly, might be just the right thing that's needed. But otherwise, other times it might not be. So the Buddha is saying we have to be very... Um, uh, thoughtful in, in choosing the right time and place to talk about difficult things. Um, if, we, if we speak about something that's very important and we have good reasons on our side, but we, we, we talk about them in the wrong time, at the wrong time, the wrong place, then uh, things might um, get, better, get worse rather than better. And skill in the way we speak to each other and the communication skills, you know, this is so important to develop. These, these don't just arise naturally. Um, it's not like even if you meditate, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be a, be a good communicator. It's there are particular skills that need to be developed, wisdom. And <clears throat> the five uh, factors of, of what we call good speech. Uh, one, you speak things that are true. Don't lie, don't exaggerate, don't change things. Speak um, things which are not only true, but are useful. Speak uh, at the right time and place. And speak making sure that your your intention is good. You have metta and goodwill towards the person. You're not trying to um, uh, sort of uh, have some kind of victory over them and... and um, Prove that you're better than they are. There, they you know they don't. You're right. They're wrong, etc. And lastly, you know, to um, be polite. Um, the whole area of manners is is a really um, intra. I think culturally, it's an interesting one. You see, like I take my country, like uh, where I was born, at least um, England. Before you know, English people have this reputation for really good manners. Okay, and um, you 
um, it's like Pudiyankrit. Okay, some of you may have been to really posh schools, you know, where where they are, people are very well mannered, but generally in a society it's not really the case in these days. Um, and one of the reasons is that um, manners, I think, became uh, seen as um, part of the class system in, in England. And it's all part of the way that wealthy people keep the poor people down and you sort of keep everything very well mannered or, or what good manners are the sign that you're, um, you're better than people that don't have good manners and so on. So there was a kind of rebellion against manners and it was considered like hypocritical and false and superficial, always to be very polite. And there was this emphasis on just saying what you mean, you know, and so being direct and being... So there's a cultural sort of sea change, a whole different um, style of relating came about. Um, I. I think the word hypocrisy is a very interesting word. Now, how would you how would you translate hypocrisy into into Thai? To say someone's a hypocrite, how how would you say that in Thai? It's difficult, isn't it? And it, huh? yeah. Um, it's not. I don't think it's it's quite the same. Because I think that, yeah, that, that's, that's somewhat similar. But I think the point that I would make is that, um, like people who come to monasteries, like Westerners who come to monastery, you know, sometimes they say, um, I shouldn't have to bow to someone I don't respect, you know. Um, sort of like, you know, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be true. I would be pretending to respect that person, for instance. Whereas, as I understand it, you know, our idea is that there are certain forms and conventions that guide social life, and that we don't make any um, assumptions about relative um, levels of people through that behavior. So, um, you know, with bowing, for instance, you know, the... <clears throat> You will get women you know, get very upset. You know, this uh, says in the video that a um, that a, a nun, a bhikkhuni, who's been ordained for a hundred, who's a hundred years old, would have to bow to a monk who's only been ordained for one day. It's like, oh, that's that's so sexist and misogynist, and that's not fair on women and and so on. But if you look at it in the larger context. It's, it's also the case of the layman of a hundred years who might be a stream enterer um, would bow to a bhikkhuni of one day. It's not, it's not a gender thing. It's, it's a convention um, laid down by the Buddha for, for showing respect according to seniority. And um, it's, it's not considered to be about who you are. So, in the in the Buddhist time, you had the the sangha was a kind of revolutionary institution, because in a uh, in the caste system, you know, there's um, even when I was in India, 
Um, this is only, what, less than 40 years ago, and I, maybe it's still the case these days. I was um, invited to stay in the house of a Brahmin. And we, I remember we were walking through this village, and he was telling me that, you see that man over there, you know, he's an untouchable. And if his shadow should touch my body, I would have to do all these sort of ceremony, purification ceremonies. You know, there's that much kind of attachment to this idea of caste, and uh, not just a physical contact, just a shadow would be enough to defile the Brahmin's purity. So you had this case in the, in the Sangha, um, where there were Brahmins and, and Gasat, Satriya and Suttas and Pokha and uh, and anta- everyone, all in the same group. And then they would pay respects according to their seniority. So if you had a um, an untouchable, someone who'd been an untouchable, been a street cleaner, and then you had you know, one of the, um, the Buddha's relatives who was uh, from the royal family, he would bow to the, the monk who was a street sweeper because he'd ordained what, just a day before or even a few hours before. So it's a structure for overcoming this attachment to who I am and my background and my family and my social status. Um, it's not a personal thing. It's not saying anything about who I am, who you are, or what men are and what women are. And, and this is very difficult for, for people from the West to, to understand that uh, we adapt our behavior according to social milieu. And the fact that you why somebody, you why some politician doesn't mean you think they're, you know, a really honest or wonderful person, but that's, what you do in that situation to maintain the social harmony. I can't remember what I was talking about now. <laughs> um, yeah, manners. So I was talking about good manners. In terms. So um, do please um, care for these magic words. Thai's got two magic words that uh, English doesn't have uh, or doesn't have or um, uh, counterpart to, and that's krap and kap. These are wonderful words, you know, and, and make sure you don't throw those away. You know, if you've been around people from other countries, other cultures, it's very easy to do that. But, but these words, uh, I think, they um, they add a certain quality and, and um, beauty to human relations and prevent this real aggression and nastiness from arising, just a very simple my point of mindfulness. Okay, I'm not going over time here. I have a close friend who always gets upset, worried, angry, anxious about everything underlined. <laughs> very easily. She is very demanding in consolation and consultation, and always blames how she acts on family dysfunction. Uh, brackets, although I see that she has all the love and support she needs. I believe that she's a very good person by heart, her problems controlling her thoughts and fears. I love her very much, but it's been very tiring. Can you recommend some Dhamma 
I could pass on to her to help. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, if it's really uh, at a certain level, you know, somebody, sometimes somebody needs therapy and counseling. Um, no, no, seriously. And, um, uh, you know, you need often, I mean, the, you know, a good therapist, and there are, there are like Buddhist therapists now, and even in Bangkok, is just someone who's, like a good friend, is someone who knows how to listen when you talk and can point out, you know, when you're contradicting yourself and when you're being silly, but it's someone who's completely out of your whole milieu, your family and friends, and someone who you, feel you have trust is objective and is giving you the truth. So if someone is really so caught up in their own view of things and can't see things from any other way, then um, I, I think therapy can sometimes be a, uh, be a good option. Um, you know, I, I obviously, I, as a Buddhist monk, I, mean, I think the ideal thing is uh, practice uh, meditation, going to monastery or going on a meditation retreat, um, and learning how to meditate and learning how to see thoughts and worries as passing mental states rather than who we are. But that's, um, you know, a long-term project as well, and it's not an easy thing to do. And um, ideally, I, I, I would suggest both of those things. But the, uh, the ability just to stand back from all the things that are going on in your mind and seeing them as just noise, um, that's um, the skill that's needed. But exactly how to encourage someone uh, to take that on is, is something else. But if someone really starts to suffer from this and really... You see, before anyone will change, they have to acknowledge that they have a problem. And, and for many people, it's a really difficult one before they accept that, yeah, they do have a problem that needs dealing with. So that's the, you know, the first thing, to see that all this upset, worry, anger, anxiety is not necessary, it's not something that's happening to you is something that you're doing. You, you are doing this, and you can stop doing it. You know, it's not that I'm angry because of that person, this person, I'm anxious because this might happen and that might happen. Uh, I'm really upset at what he did and what she did. Those are only um, triggers or only things that can encourage you to it's like if you have um, like gloves, let's say you have gloves and there are all these kind of germs, you know, whatever germs there are, you know, you're protected. Um, but if you take off the gloves and you're, you just got exposed, yeah, that, that germ can, <laughs> that germ can uh, cause an illness and this germ is because you don't know how to look after yourself. You don't know how to look after your mind. Um, so that's really what's needed. 
Uh, I would like to hear your view on purpose of life. What purpose was one born for? Uh, of lives different from person to person? Well, I think the you know, my answer to this would be it's important for everyone to consider this and to make this a question in their life, to make this a priority, you know. What, what kind of goals do I have in my life? You know, and I recognize goals of um, being successful in your career or making money or having a family or, or whatever. These are completely reasonable, legitimate goals. Nothing wrong with them. But you also, I would suggest, need some spiritual goal as well. And so what, what would that be? That's something for each person to really consider and what kind of priority you give it and how important you consider it to be. I've, um, you know, I've, I've made various um, points already that any truly fulfilling life um, demands a training and an education of how we act, how we speak, how we think, how, and an education of our emotions. And that without that, uh, we're unlikely to find any happiness in whatever um, way of life we choose. Okay, you still here? Everyone here? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is your view on supernatural stuff, ghost, sorcery, exorcism, etc.? Um, yeah, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of uh, experiences and realms of being which are not accessible to most people. And um, the, I think the question here, or important question, is not so much what are these things, how many, what, what are they like, and so on, but the important thing is what is the correct relationship to them? So what are, you know, how do you feel about these things? Do they, do they cause you to suffer or not? So we're talking about ghosts. Now, and the question is, have you ever suffered through the actions of a ghost? Probably not. But have you ever suffered through fear of ghosts? Well, yes. So I mean, let's just take this one at a time. The real problem is fear of ghosts rather than ghosts themselves. Okay? So if we're right here, here and now with our real life, you know, ghosts are not a real major issue in our life, I think. But for many people, fear of ghosts is. 
So, you know, what do you do about fear of ghosts? Um, so, you know, if we talk about, are there such a thing as ghosts? And, oh yeah, I heard this story and that story. And, it, yeah, it's really sanuk, you know, it's like good fun. Uh, or some people might <laughs> get really frightened. But it's just, it's just um, uh, gossip and chatter and, and so on. The question is, you know, we are, we are human beings subject to fear of things we don't understand, things we can't see and things that we fear might possibly hurt us. So how do we deal with that? You know, when you get really scared of something, whatever it is, uh, what do you do? When you're really scared, how does it feel? What, what, what does fear feel like? Now, what does it feel like? Where, where, is, where do you feel fear in your body? You don't know. So, if you, if you feel fear, come to your body. Come to body sensation. Really observe the experience of fear, rather than allow your mind to wander off in, into speculation and worries about the thing that might be out there. So we can deal with the present problem rather than some imaginary problem. So you know, as far as uh, ghosts, sayasad, and you know, all these things, yeah, these, these things are out there, but um, the, the question is how to uh, relate to them in the wisest and, and best possible way. Um, this is a question about different religions. Uh, can different religions coexist? Some believe in different religions can be contradictory. For instance, one of Islamic teaching states, if you do not believe in Islamic God, you'll be in hell after death. And Christianity says, um, you only believe, uh, you have to believe in God, you go to heaven. Uh, Christianity, you die, and then you either go to heaven or hell, and uh, Buddhism, you die, you heaven, hell, you're reborn. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, there are, there are all these different religions in the world. My, um, my critique, if you like, or my um, analysis of the belief system religions like Christianity and Islam, is that they are naturally divisive um, because they're based upon certain unique beliefs. And so you must always have us, we who believe, and all those that don't believe. And then you have a problem, well, how do you relate to them? You know, what's the problem? Uh, what's the right way? You, so, you know, if you, if you think that the only way that you're ever going to go to heaven is you believe, got to believe in Jesus, and there are all these millions and millions and millions of people that don't believe in Jesus, what do you do? If you don't do anything, then, you know, you're just allowing them to, um, 
drop into hell. And um, so, you know, you get um, missionaries and uh, both ethical and unethical efforts to convert people and Islam's the same, you know, Islam's right, everyone else is wrong um, and everyone else is going to hell and we're going to heaven and we're the chosen ones. Um, all these religions, they're, um, they're always going to have friction with other religions because um, they're based upon a belief in things that are not experienced and not experienceable. Now, in Buddhism, say that there is, there can be rebirth in heaven realm or hell realm, but it's based upon how you live your life, not on what you believe in. So if you're someone who is honest and kind and generous and compassionate, um, so on, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Hindu, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what matters is how you live your life and um, the way you treat your fellow human being. So we could say, in, for that reason, uh, Buddhism is like universal religion because uh, it's taking universal human qualities as the key um, determinant of rebirth rather than uh, some belief. Nevertheless, the, um, I think it is possible for religions to, to live together if there's some mutual respect and in, in Buddhism, we, we make a distinction between knowing something and believing something. It's, it's obvious, isn't it, that human beings are capable of believing 100% in things that are not true. At the very least, if, if the Muslims believe you can only go to heaven if you're a Muslim, and Christians believe you can only go to heaven if you're a Christian, then either all the Muslims are right and all the Christians are wrong, or all the Christians are right and all the Muslims are wrong, or else they're both wrong. There's like three options, aren't there? Um, so, in other, so in every one, there are people who have incredibly strong faith who are wrong. It can't be any other way. So the fact that you, and this is something that people who have strong faith, they, they overlook. They always said, because I have this incredible faith, you know, I believe so much, it must be true. Well, how do you know it's true? Well, I, I wouldn't feel this way if it wasn't true. So it's like circular reasoning, you know. It's true because I believe it, and I believe it because it's true. So I think the way to more towards more harmony of religion is to Look, belief is belief, you know, you're, you're free to believe anything you want, but don't say that that's knowing. You may believe that Jesus died to save you, uh, purify your sins, but you don't know that. It's a belief, isn't it? You may believe that 
Muhammad is the only prophet of God, and you don't know that. It's a belief taken from your book. So, Buddhist way of saying, let's be a little bit more humble here. Recognize that belief is just belief, you know. People like to believe in things, it makes them feel safe, but <coughs> it's not, it's in no way an indication that what you believe in is true. You know, I believed in Santa Claus for a number of years. I really believe. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, so we've uh, gone over time. But for the last ten minutes, invite you all to close your eyes and just have a short ten-minute meditation before lunchtime. <coughs>